Hey y'all, this is Connie Morgan with the Free Black Thought Podcast, bringing you another bonus episode that doesn't feature me, but rather my two friends and colleagues, Michael David Cobb Bowen and Wingfield Twyman Jr. As you should know, Mike is a co-founder of Free Black Thought and our resident stoic. Wink is the co-author of Letters in Black and White, a new correspondence on race. They both have respective episodes of the FBT podcast about their individual lives and work, but now they are uniting in what will be a regularly occurring podcast series called Bowen and Twyman, where they discuss being post-black. In other words, with this series, they are attempting to answer the question, what comes after black? And you know what? There really won't be a black perspective once we're past that label. Introducing for the first time, our new series, Bowen and Twyman. You're listening to the Free Black Thought Podcast. Um, this is this is the first of uh, uh, hopefully a, a nice series of podcasts that uh, that you will see. And uh, we're, we're temporarily going under uh, Bowen and Twyman uh, because that's our names. Uh, I am Michael David Cobb Bowen, and I'm here on the West Coast in, in Los Angeles County. And my name is Wink Twyman. I'm here on the West Coast as well, a little bit south of uh, Michael in San Diego, sunny San Diego. Ah, yeah, it is kind of sunny. I got 80 degrees here in the middle of November, uh, December. Is that crazy or what? That, that that's that's living in Southern yeah, California. Yeah, that's that's why what we're here. That's why we pay. That's right. Seven hundred dollars a square foot. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so I'm gonna uh, uh, say a little bit about myself because I love doing that, and and kind of say why I'm here and and kind of what our expectation uh, my expectations are uh, for myself to speak clearly. Uh, as one thing, sure. Uh, I grew up here in in SoCal, uh, in in uh, a neighborhood called West Adams, uh, better known as Crenshaw, popularized by various Hollywood movies about people who can't jump, um, and and on Fridays, uh, uh, I uh, I went to Catholic school uh, here, and then uh, I worked. I've been a union guy, uh, put myself through college, computer science. Uh, did a lot of uh, student leadership in those good old days in the mid '80s, uh, and uh, started working at Xerox in El Segundo. Uh, lived on the beach in uh, Hermosa Beach, and then uh, moved to Brooklyn, uh, continuing my work as a data engineer. Uh, got married uh, 29 years ago. I have uh, three adult children. Wow. And uh, I am currently a co-founder for uh, the Foundation for Free Black Thought. And so I am a writer uh, from a stoic perspective. I'm a data engineer and I'm an advocate uh, of uh, a lot of good things. And maybe we'll talk about some of those things. Wow, that's that's a great background. That's impressive. Uh, Hopefully hopefully I can hold up my end of things. Let's see. So I was uh, born actually in uh, 1961 in Richmond, Virginia, in a segregated colored hospital at the time called St. Mary's. Um, I uh, grew up in part on Twyman Road in then Chesterfield County, Virginia. Everyone who lived on Twyman Road was a Twyman. So I came into the world uh, graced by parents, uncles, aunts, cousins. It was magnificent. Uh, How blessed I was at the age of six and seven. Actually, I'm also part of the first generation in the South to have lived through and to have benefited from public school desegregation 
So in the first and second grade, I attended segregated schools by race, but in the third grade, schools were desegregated. And so for the most part, um, I grew up in a southern, small town, conservative uh, locale, uh, usually the only black kid in my class. Uh, and I loved my experience. And part of the reason why I enjoy um, uh, writing and talking about race issues is because I see such a disconnect and um, despair uh, in the public square nowadays that I did not know whatsoever in the 1970s uh, in a time closer to actual Jim Crow segregation. But in any event, I graduated from UVA and went on to Harvard Law School. After that, I worked at a big deal law firm in Manhattan. I hated it. I then fled to uh, Capitol Hill, Washington, D.C., where I worked for a member of Congress, met my, uh, my wife, and we've been married since June 1st, 1991. We have three great kids. They're very, very bright, very intelligent. They span the <clears throat> country from Yale and Stanford to UCLA, uh, I'm sorry, USC, wow, will you forgive wow. me, and to San Diego State University. <laughs> Great schools, all of them. Um, and I tend to, well, I work as an attorney. I'm a former law professor, and I just love writing essays now every now and then for uh, Free Black Thought. And uh, that's my story. I'm sticking with it. <laughs> cool, cool. <laughs> Man, I uh, that that's a great story. I mean, uh, we're... I guess we're kind of successful. I guess we're we're in the uh, the elite five percent of Black America. Uh, some might say. Have some you might say. Uh, have you had that experience? Have you had uh, ordinary Black folks tell you that uh, you're exceptional and uh, you don't represent? <laughs> what was that conversation about <laughs> my son a few moments ago? Just easy. Just teasing, just teasing people, ladies and gentlemen. But it's funny you mentioned that about uh, 5% and elite. Um, I, I, you know, objectively one could say that, but I don't feel mm -hmm. that way, to be mm -hmm. honest. I just feel like I'm getting by. Case in point, I was at uh, uh, a funeral uh, the other day, and uh, I was coming up, and uh, I just happened to see two moms in Jack and Jill, mm -hmm which is a, a mom's association. And the two moms were just talking. <clears throat> and uh, I noticed that one mom had like a fancy foreign car and the other mom had a fancy white Mercedes Benz. Mm -hmm. And I felt this, this sense of dread. Do I belong? <laughs> so I had, I had, had my son pull up our uh, life beaten Nissan <laughs> with the Harvard Law School license plate on the back. And I noticed the two moms on the slide looking at the license plate. <laughs> And so I just wanted to belong. But it's funny because uh, in some ways, yeah, I'm doing okay. In other ways, like many people, I'm still trying to, still striving to belong and to mm. uh, make it clear that I have credentials yeah. too. So it just depends on your context. It's funny. Whether you're an elite When When I was a kid, I grew up in, in Southern Cal, of course. And, you know, I learned how to skateboard and I learned how to surf. And we have this casual way of being here. And I always wanted to drive a clunker with uh, with a Harvard mm. license plate frame that says that. And, <laughs> and I was like, I'm going to be one of those guys in jeans and T-shirts and, and sneakers, but I'll have the nice Rolex watch and I'll have the, the Harvard bumper sticker. Uh, I'm living your life. Yeah. <laughs> the odd thing was, 
that actually my grandfather uh, worked at Yale. Uh, and mm -hmm. when my dad didn't get into Yale, uh, he came to the West Coast and uh, began his career mm -hmm. as a radical. He was like, mm -hmm. you know, my, 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 my grandfather was quite a character. Uh, we, we call him Chico. Yeah. And uh, he, uh, he got married during the, the, the Depression and uh, he lost mm -hmm. his parents early. Uh, and so was kind of adopted by another family. But my grandparents grew up in the projects in uh, New Haven, Connecticut. Uh, but mm -hmm. now, you know, my, uh, my nephew, uh, I, have, I have just a gigantic family all over the place. Right. And I was just looking at a little black history. And my favorite graduate uh, was a guy named E.A. Boucher. And Boucher graduated mm -hmm. from either Yale or Harvard in physics in the 1880s. And Yale, I believe. Yes. Uh, and he went to that same little private school that my nephew goes to right now. Oh. And I can't even remember the name of it, but it's, 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 right. it's one right. of those things. So I've always kind of thought of myself as a kind of shabby gentility. There's... Mm, just there just kind of, you know, not rolling in the dough, yeah. but part of a big f family, you know, that spread mm -hmm. out mm -hmm. and plenty of examples. Mm -hmm. I, I never had to get role models from TV or radio or movies. Right, right, right. You know, it's so interesting to me, this 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 concern for the uh, fancy car. Uh, I remember my dear uncle, uh, James Scott Twyman. He was uh, probably one of the wealthiest African-Americans in terms of net worth in the 19, maybe 1990s, 2000s. Mm. And I remember he drove the, 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 the most decrepit cars. He would always stay in the cheapest hotels he could find. Uh, he was tight as a, as, as a, you know, what with a dollar <laughs> bill, it was said that he could turn, what was it? He could turn a, a nickel into a dime and a dime into mm. a dollar without thinking about it. Always purchase properties for 50 cents on mm. a dollar, never had any mortgage mm -hmm. debt. So he really was a fascinating example of, uh, of, of an accomplished black mm. American. Uh, he, I suspect, I suspect he was probably wealthier than these two lovely Jack and Jill moms I saw with the fancy yeah. cars, but he just lived an opposite mm -hmm. life. He uh, was definitely uh, uh, someone who believed in living below your means, yeah. which I just think is a fascinating thing. Uh, do a query, query whether or not Black Americans would have more wealth if we were less concerned about the Mercedes Benz in the parking lot or the BMW to pick up granddaughter at church. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, there's something to say for affluence. There's something to say, I mean, like, like my kids are addicted to going out to nice, fancy restaurants. Uh, my daughter's mm -hmm. birthday mm -hmm. was just Yesterday, I took her out for for oh happy for steaks and 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 we just waiting for our seat in the bar. It, uh, we just had two drinks, and it was fifty one dollars, including tip. Ah, good and lord! Like, this inflation is <laughs> my wife will kill me. <laughs> but but I don't know. I don't know um, yeah. if if it's ever going to be easy or predictable how to make a lot of wealth. Mm. I mean, 
Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. you you definitely, I mean, the very fact of the existence of that book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, means you have to learn mm-hmm. certain things to mind your money and to handle your business. Mm-hmm. And there's there's more than a little bit of luck involved. I mean, for example, mm-hmm. in the company, I was employee number three, and it was just a small company, and we just sold it um, about two two and a half years ago. And we were about to get this massive contract with Qantas. And we had been working there for five years and we were about to get, you know, a multi-million dollar contract with them. And what happens? COVID killed the airline industry Uh, more than anything ever. So it was like kind of a great depression. And we had staked our business on that. And so, you know, the reason this is a a Casio... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> is because some smart guy bought our business for 25 cents on the dollar. Um, and so, mm-hmm. you know, maybe mm-hmm. they'll, they'll do okay with that investment. Uh, but, you know, I yeah. thought I was going to hit the jackpot. Right, right, right. So I'm, I'm right. doing fine. Yeah. Uh, don't get me wrong, mm-hmm. but uh, mm-hmm. you never know. There's, there's a mix of things and you're in the economy. My 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 son and I, and I my son as I mentioned is a very bright guy. He's uh, currently in business mm-hmm. school at a great university. But um, it's interesting because when we talk about uh, uh, black wealth and uh, accumulation of great black wealth, I always look at the pioneers and the people who got it right. Mm-hmm. So I, I I think about it and I quote Barry Gordy. Mm-hmm who founded Motown in 1959. Mm-hmm. America was not a happy place in 1959 in terms Probably of race, no. but yeah. did not make a difference to right. Barry Gordy. He had a focus, he had an idea, and he persevered. Uh, another person, Maggie Walker, the first black female president of a yeah. bank uh, in Richmond, Virginia, in, in this country. Um, I think she started the bank in 1902, Things were not rainbows and candy bars in Richmond, Virginia in 1902, but yet the woman had focus. Mm-hmm. She had a vision. She had a mm-hmm. dream. And whether or not there was external racial prejudice and bigotry did not deter her from creating a lasting institution for uh, for the Black people in Richmond. Uh, it would later become Consolidated Bank and Trust, mm-hmm. or bank, which my dad used to bank at when I was a little kid. So, you know... Reginald Lewis, people laugh in my household because I always cite Reginald Lewis as a great great icon. Thank you. Thank you. I'll tell my (laughs) wife. Thank you. Because, um, you know, I just think it's so easy to blame external factors or to use slogan words like systemic and structural Mm -hmm. and to focus on the disadvantages out there in the marketplace. But I don't think Reginald Lewis did that. I think he was aware of biases and prejudices, mm-hmm. but God darn it all, he had a goal, he had a mission, and he was going to achieve it. And you could pound sand if you were not part of his uh, his yeah, dream. Yeah. Is, either you could get on board or get yeah. out of the way. I was the same way, Michael, when I was in school. I, I remember in the fourth grade, I decided I wanted to become student council mm. president. And, <laughs> you know, this was like one year, just like one year after desegregation. Mm-hmm. You know, most of my white classmates were as prejudiced as they come, mm-hmm. probably. I was always in a school that was either 4% black or 8% mm-hmm. black. But it didn't matter right. to me. I didn't think to myself, 
oh, golly gee whiz. <laughs> but for structural this and systemic that, I could live my was it, Wasn't <laughs> there an ice cube lyric like that? Just that, oh, golly gee whiz. <laughs> that's a that's that small town kid coming out of me, Michael. That small town kid. But, you know, I never gave such a thought to anything. I remember one day, Michael, I was on the school mm-hmm. bus. It must have been junior high school, maybe mm-hmm. eighth grade. And I told a classmate, white classmate, who was on the poor side, well, I'm going to become governor of our school next year. I'm going to run for governor. And he looked at me, trying to size me up. And he said, who ever heard (laughs) of a black governor? And I could not have cared less. He could have pounded sand for all I cared Mm -hmm. about. Because I had my goal. I had my friends. And I was going to run. I was going to win. And when I did, when I did. Where is that can-do attitude, Michael, nowadays. Why I do think our there's... Best, best and brightest focus on the external problems and not the internal? Well, I, I tell you, of... I think um, most of Black America has become bougie. And, and we have bougie <laughs> expectations. We're like, if we, if we mm-hmm. you know, pledge the right fraternity, if we take these right courses, and, and we're not the only ones. There's, there's a huge... Uh, set of people out there who want to socialize themselves into success, and and mm. and they're they're very entitled. And th- there's a point at which you got to say, yeah, you got to say, well, there's there's something that we've earned, some what Glenn Laurie calls social capital, and and that's mm-hmm. real. Because uh, my daughter, for example, my youngest daughter, um, I, I I I had to decide in California whether I was going to buy a nice house and send the kids to uh, public school or mm. I could live in a nice community and send the kids to public school or I could live in a downscale community, buy a house and send them to private school. And so I ended mm-hmm. up renting in a very expensive community mm-hmm. and sending them to a very good public school. And this yeah. community has been like one and a half percent uh, black, you know, forever. And, but but yeah. I, I had yeah. lived there, you know, back in the eighties, uh, down here at the beach. And, um, she, uh, just practically walked into being student body president of her elementary school, you know, and, and we put them in scouts and we put them in community theater and they did all of those things. Uh, with their friends, and I, they didn't have any uh, racial identity hangups. Uh, but it was also because both of us, our parents, had lived here as younger adults in 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 the previous mm-hmm. generation, and we were perfectly comfortable. And and I had the right. opportunity right. to live anywhere I wanted, and I have lived multiple places around the uh, country. Sure. And I just said, you know, there are some nice things that my kids should expect. Um. And I think there's a lot of that bougie attitude, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. But we still do appreciate the 50 cents of the world who said, I'm going to get rich mm-hmm. or die trying. And I've heard him mm-hmm. do a little podcast. It, maybe it wasn't him or somebody like him who said, this is how success yeah. feels like to me. You walk out into the ocean, and then you go under the water. And then when you think you can't breathe anymore, you stay under the water. And then your lungs are burning, you're going to burst and your head is going to explode. You stay underwater. And it's like, I think I'm going to die. And it's only when you think you're going to die, you come up for breath and then you go back down again. 
That's my commitment to being successful. I don't care how big the waves are. I know they're trying to kill me, you know? So, so Mm -hmm. it seems to me that the most pessimistic people who believe this kind of stuff is, is going to destroy all of black America. They should be strive. They should be the hardest strivers. Uh, But Mm -hmm. I, I think, I think my family looking at my parents and their parents and the stories of my great grandparents, they were striving, Sure, but they were striving to right. be dignity, uh, have dignity and maintain their family unit and be good in their communities and, and reach as high as possible. Uh, like my, my mm-hmm. uncle, I always make an example of him grew up in the projects, you know, all my, all my, the generation above me grew up in the projects and he got a PhD in microbiology. And so it, it became, you know, known, uh, he went to Yukon, uh, and he was one of that great alumni group that's made Yukon the powerhouse that it is today. Uh, and, and right. they, they interviewed my grandmother and he says, well, there's not many black PhDs in microbiology. He says, yeah, that's my son. That's what I expected him to do. Mm-hmm. And it was like, well, okay, that's there's the Bowen men for you, and 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 we put ourselves out there, um, and we don't forget where we. Do come you from. think? Do you think these ideas about focusing on the structural and the systemic, uh, that blackness is oppression, nothing else that matters? I've thought for some time, Michael, that these ideas are not organic mm-hmm. to black culture and consciousness. Mm-hmm. If you look at the the, 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 the ranks of law students at Howard Law mm-hmm. School in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, they weren't thinking that, and they had far more yeah, real they had real Jim Crow on the books then. Exactly, exactly. If you were looking at the, uh, the, 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 the home of John Johnson in the 1940s as he was deciding, should I really create this black national magazine called mm-hmm. Ebony? Is there a chance? Should I hawk my mom's furniture to do this? He wasn't thinking, oh, blackness is oppression, nothing else matters, I can't, I can't do it. Well, no, of course not. I mean, Michael, it almost seems like these ideas from the fancy academics have weaved their way like a mental virus mm-hmm. into our indigenous black culture and consciousness mm-hmm. so that we forget the best of our ancestors. What do you think about I that? I think there is a lot of forgetfulness. I, I do. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and because of that, um, I don't know, I, I'm going to, I'm going to put myself out there uh, and say Moynihan was right. And Oh, that's <laughs> deep. That is a deep that, statement that, for that, the after dude. <laughs> that black families. Um, I was just browsing through an article the other day and they said the ultimate privilege is having a two parent family. I read the same and, article. And then, and then yeah. some people don't even know what that's like. And they don't know that what that's like back a couple generations. And so when you have people for like it or lot, whether you think role modeling works or not, they have to go out and, and purchase some black identity cookies. Right. And they might get it from the radio and they might get it from a gang. Ethnic studies. They might get it from their universities, but they, they, they don't have a working model of what it's to, uh, you know, what it's like to be black in America. And so they take somebody else's word for it. 
and yeah. and and and, yeah. and that's why I'm like shaking my head when you have Nancy Pelosi kneeling down in the Capitol with a kente cloth on, trying to say, yeah. "I'm Trayvon." Don't Martin. get me started. Don't get me started. Right? <laughs> and so that's that's the marketing. And 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 yes, right. You're right that it is external from America, um, because right. uh, you know. I moved to to New York City, and I I read a lot of books. I read a lot. My my mm-hmm. my, my dad left me a legacy of hundreds and hundreds of books, a lot by black authors. Good. Um, and right. so I'm accustomed to black ideas coming completely out of left field or from over here or wherever. Mm-hmm. And I I remember I said, Dad, what's the hardest book that you have? Because I can read any book you have, and he gave me. Uh, Blues People by Leroy Jones. And I looked at that mm-hmm. book and I was like, I can't read it, but I'm glad I know there's a black person out there smarter than me because it had footnotes right, and everything. Right. And I was like, oh, okay, all right, you're right. Yeah. Um, but, you know, people were telling me, you you need to understand Frieri, Paolo Frieri, The Pedagogy of the Oppressed. You re- need to read Franz oh, Fanon. Yeah. You need yeah. to read uh, Herbert Marcuse. You need to to read uh, the Frankfurt School. Well, don't you know those are the Frederick Douglasses and the Mordecai Johnsons of our age, right? Those are the uh, uh, the Gene Tumors and the uh, Langston Hughes of mm-hmm. our day. That, that was that's kind of my point is that those people you've mentioned, none of them would have called the AME Church home. None of them would mm-hmm. have called the black barbershop, the place where I get my mm-hmm. haircut. None of them would have banked at a black bank, consolidated bank and trust in downtown mm. Richmond. None of them would have buried their loved ones for black mortician, a black mm. undertaker. None of them would have um, gone to a black law firm uh, for legal representation in a time of family mm-hmm. crisis. So why would we, as a self-respecting people, allow our sense of self to be moved in, transported mm-hmm. in from people totally alien mm-hmm. to, uh, to to the Black experience. I'll tell you why. Tell me I actually have an me. answer. Tell me why. <laughs> I want to well, hear this. And, and it's real because well, the, the, the reality is Black America is diverse. And one thing I always yes. used to quote is when I was born in 1961, there were 20 million Negroes. 20 million and if you thought the average one was poor, you'd be right. Because the majority of mm-hmm. Negroes in 1960 were poor. And, mm-hmm. and they were concentrated in a few redlined areas. And then the Civil Rights Acts passed four years later. And then you could start working for the government. You could take the civil service exam. And that made a brand new middle class. But it also was some brain drain. It was some middle class, mm. moderate, modest talents getting white collar jobs in America for the first time. And and mm-hmm. my grandfather, who did have a white collar job, but he is networked with the Shriners, with the Elks, with the Masons. That was that was his network. And, and he was a deacon mm-hmm. in his Black Episcopal Church in New Haven, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. And once that network of backbone kind of broke down and people spread out mm-hmm. all over the place, well, then you lost 
a lot of community. And and mm-hmm. and and that's real. And then some of them said, mm-hmm. "Hey, look, we're gonna do. We're gonna start a revolution, uh, and we're not gonna be Negroes anymore. We're gonna be black, and we're gonna do this." And then there was that conflict. Who are you calling black? I'm a Negro. I go to this church, and we've been a Negro church, and before that we were a colored church, but we're not doing another change. Mm-hmm. All right. And mm-hmm. so Black America splintered up, and people. Mm-hmm were free enough to do what they wanted to do. Whereas before, they really weren't free enough. You had to go to that black barbershop. And I know Supercuts doesn't do a good job today, but <laughs> they are all over the place. Or I could just go right. Michael Jordan. Right, right, right. But 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 I, I, I hear that, and I, I think there's a lot of truth in that. But as you say... People now had choices, mm-hmm. right? So why would a, for example, Derek Bell mm-hmm. from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, who knew the very best in black lawyers and black advocacy in the 1960s against Jim mm-hmm. Crow, segregation in public schools, why would he turn in the late 80s and early 90s to the dark mm-hmm. side, in a sense? Why would he willingly inhale these ideas that were not organic to what he must have known in black culture mm-hmm. and consciousness. That's the question. Yeah. I, I, have. I, I, I wonder, I think a lot of us do that fantasy. You know, if, if America never mm-hmm. was racist, I would be making 200,000 instead of 100,000. Right. I, I, cause I see these people over here with no talent, like, like, uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Oh geez, who's 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 the woman who's hanging out with a football player these days? And, oh, I yeah, don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 you got. I'm at a yes. loss. Yes, but anyway, everybody knows her, and she she plays an underdog, and she sells out concert stadiums, but she can't sing as good as Nancy Wilson. And so you're saying, mm-hmm. how come Nancy Wilson isn't making Lady Gaga money? And 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 yeah. there we sustain this fantasy that if it weren't for those nasty Klansmen. And all these undercover mm. racists, we will be making all kinds of money. But mm. but mm. that happens at the same time where they are now in an integrated environment instead of competing with all the blacks at Morehouse. Because then they would know oh. they're mediocre black <laughs> compared to the other black students at Morehouse. Don't hold back, Michael. Don't hold back. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, we have our youth culture. We can listen to the boom, boom, right. clack. You know, we can dress sure. however we want to dress. Uh, we, yeah. We've ditched a yeah. lot of cultural avenues that we used to respect. And so, you know, it's what, a free-for-all. One of the reasons why I never could buy into the more the more radical, the better <clears throat> idea mm-hmm. is that um, in doing my personal history, my genealogy mm-hmm. research, I've come across examples of white distant cousins mm-hmm. who didn't have it as good as I did. Yeah. Uh, for example, um, I, I should mention that if you go back far enough, the very first Twyman in the New World was George Twyman I born in 1663, no, 1661 in Kent, England. And he came to Virginia, Mm -hmm. to Middlesex County in 1677 as a teenager. 
as an indentured servant to um, a Thomas Lee. And things were so bad for this white indentured yeah. servant in the 1600s that he ran away. He ran away from his master, Thomas yeah. Lee, and hid out in the Virginia forest for up to a month wow. before uh, returning to uh, Mr. Lee. And who knows what uh, oh my punishment God. he, he went suffered. Back. But my, yeah, but my point is it takes a certain empathy to understand, you know, some of your white distant relatives had it pretty bad too. Yeah. I, uh, and not just that, but um, if you were to look at the 1960s, mm-hmm. The black Twymans were living more or less on Twyman Road and red brick mm-hmm. homes and filled with enterprise. Uh, I had an uncle across the street who may have been the largest black businessman mm-hmm. in the county. Uh, I had um, another uncle, for example, James Scott, who was acquiring real estate properties for 50 cents mm-hmm. on a dollar. People had indoor plumbing. They had cars. They had you know running water for the most part. But if you were to look at the white Twymans in the 1960s, they were destitute. Wow. Uh, they had no running water. They had no automobiles. They lived in a wood frame house that was maybe 200 years old. Wow. Um, they were poor. And so I always thought about that. If, if racism was so horrible, why is it that Twymans that share the same mm-hmm. genes, the only difference being race, mm-hmm. the black Twymans are doing kind of okay. Yeah. And the white twimes were just destitute, yeah. absolutely destitute. So, I mean, maybe it, maybe it goes counter to the narrative, Michael. Yeah. Maybe we don't well, want to hear true. that well, because you know, that doesn't make sense. It's, it's, <laughs> it, 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 it's really crazy uh, for me to accept the definition of race that was started in America for the express purpose of, of, of segregation. Of, of making mm-hmm. excuses mm-hmm. for slavery. And then mm-hmm. how long have we lived believing in the one drop rule? You know, such a good point, Mike, such a good point, because I've thought to myself, it, it, when you accept the one drop rule, which means you're mm-hmm. black, if you just have one discernible ancestor or black right. drop of blackness, you're, you're buying into the very system that that really created you as a non-human or to marshal, marginalize the person, idea uh, or an I outcast. Don't, I don't think it's yeah. a consistent You're, system. The system's got, as shot no. full of holes or other, otherwise we'd right. all be in West Virginia. Yeah. I mean, so to be honest, I think the most revolutionary thing one could do, and this is my idea that I'm still developing, is to do the very opposite of the quote-unquote one-drop rule. I mean, if you you should embrace everything that is a part of who Mm -hmm. you are. I mean, I echo in this regard, Thomas Chatterton Mm -hmm. Williams, Unlearning Race. I echo Adrian Piper, the uh, artist in Berlin, Germany. You know Adrian Piper too? Oh my God, I didn't know that. Just, I I communicated once with her. So I don't want to overstate the 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 connection. The point is, Adrian Piper Mm -hmm. is the North Star. When I I think about about race in America, I think who has thought it all the way through to the nth degree, and that's Adrian Piper. So tell tell the listeners who is this Adrian, Adrian Piper, Piper, and why should we be excited? Adrian Piper about is her? a woman who could decide to pass or decide not to pass. She's a philosopher mm-hmm. and an artist, and she is the disinherited daughter of the Piper airplane millionaire. 
Okay. So the guys that make Piper Cubs and Piper aircraft is her daddy. And her mother mm -hmm. was black, blacker than she is. And then she was, you know, kind of like the, the story of the Joker, right? Disowned. Mm -hmm. And so she mm -hmm. made sense of it all. And she became the first performance artist. And so I encountered her work in the mid eighties uh, out here. Oh, okay. Where she took, she took uh, the American Express commercial and said that it was a full page ad in a magazine where it says membership has its privileges. And then she drew like a thousand angry bald head black men on that thing. They said membership had its privileges. <laughs> and so she played right, games right. with race. Uh, she would dress yeah. up as a man and walk the streets of New York City and fool people. She would go passing as white, <laughs> do her hair that way, and then hand people yeah, little yeah. racist cards. You just said something insulting about black people. You probably didn't know that I'm black. So she <laughs> is she is like the the ur goddess of performance race uh you know gaming yeah and and yeah. and 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 then she adopted eastern philosophy uh she was a professor of philosophy in a small mm -hmm. liberal arts college on the east coast someplace and and i can remember when a stupid magazine would try to get her to take krs1 seriously so the, she was like Adrian Piper versus KRS-One on NPR. <laughs> and, so, mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, Chris uh, was saying his stuff, his mumbo jumbo. And I was like, oh, my goodness. Uh, so, so, yeah, Adrian Piper, uh, Kwame Anthony Appiah, uh, those are kind of the two people that really cleared up a lot of mess in my head mm -hmm. about how serious it how seriously we need to take race. And, and, and if you're, if you're reading black history, anybody today who's saying, Oh, you know, the universities are not teaching enough black history. You know, you got to have 30 books under your belt at the very least to, to be barely competent, even just about the history of the civil war, let alone black, mm -hmm. the fullness of black American history. But you absolutely, mm -hmm. if you're going to read Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw and Gloria Aldanzua and Large Audrey Lord, as I have, they're all on that shelf. You right, got right. to read Kwame Appiah because Appiah was a family friend of Kwame Nkrumah. He was named after Kwame Nkrumah oh. because his daddy was a crony in the Nkrumah government, and he mm -hmm. said mm -hmm. they replicated the same race cast that they learned in America over in West Africa. And that's why Liberia oh. didn't do it. And he, he basically outlines why the idea of race breaks everything. And, and you just have to read his stuff. And then I would say, mm -hmm. you're getting a real education. Uh, and, and he's still around and he's still teaching these days. And and and, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. the smartest professors that I know uh, respect and uh, uh, Kwame Appiah a lot. Uh, so yeah. he's basically said this is what goes wrong with racial leadership all the time, all the way back to guys named like like uh, Garvey, uh, Alexander Crummel, uh, just just all the way down the line. So it sounds like it's just a, a question of 
humanity, defects in the human condition. There's nothing racial per se about uh, humanity, man's humanity to man. I mean, I think that is such a powerful insight. Mm. But yet we don't see that taught in our institutions, our universities. Because because people have it in their their mindset. They want to bash America. You know, they they want an alternate history of America, like the 1619 Project. And and it's always, you know, wanting to take it out against the man. Keep Whitey on the hook. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what Derek Bell got mad. He's like, mm-hmm. I, I'm mm-hmm. tenured at Harvard. You know, if I, maybe if I kissed up to white folks, I'd become a Supreme Court justice. Really? Oh. Oh. <laughs> right? <laughs> like yes. Clarence Thomas. Yeah. All right. <laughs> uh, but, yeah. And, 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 and that's but, 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 but it's that thing. It's like if you absolutely want to go against America and the free yeah. areas of the world and the Marcuses in the world and the Marxists of the world, you know, that's 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 what that's the the pipe that they're blowing or smoking. And uh, right. Know, right. And, and, and but it's such. Yeah. It, it's it's so incongruent. Right. Because you would you would think that external conditions that reality would result in one's ideology or one's worldview, things were far, far, far more oppressive and difficult in the late 1800s, the 1900s. But I don't think our leading intellectuals and writers were anti-American. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think that the people we we remember and recall, I mean, even go back to the 1700s, one of the people I've just discovered, and I really love, is Reverend Lemuel Haynes, yeah. who was the first ordained black minister in this country and the first black to get an honorary master's degree. He got his degree from Middlebury in 1804. Wow. He was the minister of an all-white church in Vermont for 30 years in the early 1800s. You will not. F- he, he preached over 5,000 sermons, mm. Michael. 5,000 sermons. You will not see one sermon or one document where he is as anti-America mm. as Derek Bell. Mm. Why is that? Why would a black guy who knew real slave times mm. not be as pessimistic as someone on the perch of a Harvard Law School tenure position? I, I, there's an incongruence the, there. Derek Bell had a, a home church. Oh, that's a deep question. Are you suggesting that Christianity plays a part in the development of one's absolutely one's absolutely movie. i think and 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 interestingly enough this is a conversation that i heard oh maybe four or five years ago uh between yes. um eric weinstein eric weinstein mm-hmm. sorry and rabbi david wolpe yes well, and, I like a lot. and and Respect what he lot. said wolpe in defense of christianity and christendom in general he says, Christianity, Christians know, render unto Caesar. Okay? Yes. Which means Christians, unlike Jews and Muslims, grew up in a secular, uh, under a secular empire. So they knew how to keep their own morals and their own canon law intact without having to take mm-hmm. over everything. And that's why Christianity mm-hmm. is a, a little bit more pure ethics. Uh, Judaism has worked their way around something and various 
aspects mm-hmm. of Islam have worked their way around it. But Judaism right. gave us the idea of separating church and state. But when you do that, you have to recognize that the secular powers, which were empires and kings, could do whatever they wanted to do. And if you didn't have the moral backbone of membership in that body of Christ, um, you know, you were at their mercy. So if you give that up, then all you can see is Caesar. And you're giving, you're rendering Mm. everything unto Caesar. And you're thinking the only Mm -hmm. way I can get up in this society is to fight fire with fire. So you go look at the Roman mm-hmm. legions mm-hmm. and you say, I got to make me a sword like that. But 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 mm-hmm. but Jesus Christ did not come to earth to rule kingdoms. He says, I'm giving you another mm-hmm. way out. I'm giving you a spiritual way out. And I think that's right. one of the reasons Christianity has survived for thousands of years, because it establishes right. the idea of a canon law separate and distinct from the secular law, which means Right. If if the if the nation only recognizes dollars and political power and you don't have those things, you're nothing. But if you have Christian, you say, well, I got the kingdom of God. I have my integrity. I don't need those other things. But but why would the um, the critical race theory ideas of Derek Bell that are, say, secular, mm-hmm. non-Christian, mm-hmm. why would they land so well? among a Christian people. As you well know, Black Americans have historically yeah. been some of the most Christian mm-hmm. people on the mm-hmm. planet. Uh, you can look at any records from the time of slavery. Mm-hmm. Road to and Roll by Eugene Genovese makes the argument very well that religion and Christianity and the spiritual pervaded all aspects of, of slave life. So my question again is, if that's true, if if Derek Bell's constituency was a holy people, how is it that his secular ideas of critical race theory landed so well among people who attended church on Sundays? Because to work. We don't longer attend church? Black power. <laughs> oh, you see, black power is, is severing the tie that binds. That's, well, black power is 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 you know keep whitey on the hook with power. The only thing that power uh-huh. respects uh-huh. is power. So if you gotcha. think the power gotcha. is illegitimate, then you want to grab your own power and 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 you know fight the powers that be. Those those so are these very people like Stokely Carmichael. You know, so you're saying Angela Davis was not in a pew every Sunday morning, that Stokely Carmichael was not no, worshiping no, no, no. at the AME church no, on no. Sunday You morning. know, Angela Davis <laughs> was Marcuse's star student. Right. And so so right. in the 60s, which my, my, my parents were definitely in that mix. My dad founded the Institute mm-hmm. for Black Studies in 1966. Okay. And, um, and it was about getting the power. It wasn't enough, mm. you know, Stokely Carmichael, who became Touré, I guess, said these civil rights laws are not enough for us. We don't, we still don't mm. feel dignified. We want power. And so when mm-hmm. you want power, mm-hmm. then you have to decide whether it's going to be militant power, where you're going to take to the streets, or it's going to be intellectual power where you're clashing ideas. 
and 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 yeah. going in an ideological battle. And I think, was- but I can tell you, I mean, I can tell you, Michael, those sentiments about power and being in the streets that didn't land too well in conservative suburban small town communities in the 1960s. Well, I'm just not. being honest. Well, I had never, I had never heard of Malcolm yeah, X, for example, yeah. until I was maybe a high school yeah. senior. It was, just, he was just seen as alien. I remember the first black Muslim on the Richmond city city council. What was his name? Oh, I can't remember. I can't remember his mm. name, but I remember family members just looking at him like he had two heads. <laughs> This is like in 1979, 1980. I'm just being honest, no, Michael. No, no, just being no. honest. So, so, so I think that there's almost like a topography here. There's something we we tend always to kind of lump black Americans together with these great intellectual no movements, but there's far more nuance and complexity. Oh, and I'm just absolutely. telling you, th- these these ideas were not landing. Uh, <laughs> At the corner what? of Route Ten, and, I mean, we were, and, we were like, one in Chester, Virginia. What's up with Lou Alcindor? <laughs> what's up uh, with Lou Alcindor? What's up with Cassius Clay? Uh-huh. Uh, and, right, and right, you know right. they changed their names, and right, and, and right, right. you know that that kind of went in a in a strange direction. I was I'm, I was arguing with somebody online the other day, and I said it's not just black and white, but you have to understand the center of black. There's 360 degrees of vectors, all right? We may have all started off in Mississippi, but we're not all in Mississippi right now, right? That was a great migration, and it was great. And people people west of the Mississippi came out this way. People east of the Mississippi Mm -hmm. went north. And and so Mm -hmm. I think some of us have like a color purple should problem. Like, we've gone up north. And we we've come back. I was married now, and and the people in the south say, "I don't care. You're not us. You're not part of us anymore." Uh, so right. so right. so black people voted with their feet all over the country, and yeah. that's how I have my now, mother now, from New Orleans and my father from New Haven. Now I'm going to play devil's advocate with you. I think you are certainly right in my family, right? Because I'm from Virginia. My wife is from Brooklyn. The kids have only known San Diego. Mm. So we certainly are examples of migration Mm -hmm. and whatever. But here's the thing. When I look at my family in Virginia, and this is truth, most of my family that lived on Twyman Road and thereabouts, we had lived in the same area, the same, let's say, three miles of Mm -hmm. ground since the 1870s. Since the 1870s, we walked the same grounds that my grandmother's grandfather walked. We saw the same railroad tracks that mm. he saw. We worshipped in the church that my grandmother's grandfather mm. founded. Uh, and so I'm wondering if my Black American family experience was different from maybe the larger Black American experience of, of the Great Migration. I mean, Black people only know the Black people they know. <clears throat> Ooh, that's deep. Black people, can yeah. I quote that? Black people only know the Trademark black people that. that they know. When I when I started school again, I did yeah. not know the black fraternities. I mean, I literally did not ah. know them. I ended up going alpha, Same here. Same here. But the yeah. Kappas, oh, these are Kappas. And this is what a Kappa attitude is like. So fresh and so clean, right? Mm-hmm. And, and these are the Sigmas. Nobody respects the Sigmas. But they do throw some good parties, right? 
And then the Q dogs, just crazy animal, right? You know, right? And right, alphas, right. they thought we were a little light in our loafers, but uh, that, sure. that wasn't always the case. Well, it wasn't usually the case, but right. it, anyway, each fraternity had its own reputation. And I had to learn that because I didn't even know them and the sororities too. Mm. And, and, and mm. so like on my college campus, we had all four fraternities, all four sororities, yeah. plus a black business association, uh, the black student union, uh, the friends of Africa, uh, which was the anti-apartheid group. Uh, and they had fruit sales and stuff like that. And there was rejoice in Jesus. And there was my group, the National Society of Black Engineers. And so, you know, a dozen groups, different black cliques. So in that way, yes. even on what we used to call predominantly white campuses, there was black diversity, even though we were only a fraction of the population. And my favorite story to support your point, Michael, is such a, a powerful point uh, that you only know the black people you know are, are and, and, and then you're going, sure that um, you're 100% black. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, re returning to my little uh, Mayberry USA mm -hmm. upbringing in Chester, Virginia, mm -hmm. um, I remember my first girlfriend, and uh, she was well-connected with the black oh, elite okay. in Richmond, Virginia, and there was certainly a black elite in Richmond, Virginia. Yeah. And so um, we were dating, and uh, I remember... We, we were being very, you know, warm and fuzzy. And I remember she asked me, so what Jack and Jill chapter do you belong to? She didn't ask me if, right. if you belong to yeah. a Jack, what Jack, and I had never heard of the yeah. thing. And yeah. so I said, no, no chapter. And I wonder, even to this day, if my attractiveness mm. to her had oh. dropped oh, yeah. <laughs> a bit. I mean, that, that happened to me too. That happened to me. So I was, I was early decision electrical engineering at USC. And I had already skipped grades. So I got this notification while I was 16 years old. Uh, a senior in, in high school and finished all my requirements I only had I only had three mm -hmm. classes left to take that whole second semester. Right, three free periods, so you couldn't tell me shit. And <laughs> I got over to USC, and they said, "Here's your fee bill," and I'm like, "What, <laughs> Dad? Can you bounce up the house and uh, <laughs> pay for my?" Goes, eh -eh, eh -eh. So I had a choice. I had to either go work on my own or go to ROTC. And my dad was a Marine, and I didn't want to have to deal with that again. So I ended up working, joined the union. Two years later, I'm at this party, fine girl. And we start dancing. And so she says, I go to Cal Poly Pomona. What school do you go to? I said, I'm a teamster. I work full time. And she left me on the dance floor, just turned around and walked. <laughs> And I'm like, oh my god! And I and, and this was in front of my my people, my, my my boys, right? Yeah, because right, they're right, all right, in college. Right. I wouldn't have known about this party yeah. if I didn't have those friends. And so that right. was that was just rough, um, brutal, brutal reality, brutal reality. And I, I live yeah. at the yeah. bottom of the hills. I live at the bottom of the hills, like 
View Park, Ladera Park, everybody knows that's kind of the Black Beverly mm -hmm. Hills out here. And I had yeah. friends up there because we went to the same private school. But, you know, right. college. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'll give you another example of that, of those kind of uh, uh, assumptions about mm -hmm. people, uh, preconceptions. So, um, and it happened to me twice. So I'm, uh, I'm in Maine near Bethel. Uh, with my first girlfriend and we're on a ski trip uh, in, in a in a tour okay. bus and we've had fun and the um the tour guide uh approaches me and says um are you from jamaica <laughs> and i said no, no i'm from i'm from chester virginia but i was intrigued because i'm in my home mm -hmm. country and someone out of the blues is asking me are you from jamaica so i just kind of chucked it off as a strange right. person but then it happened again <clears throat> I was at a, a, a lunch for um, the American Association of Law, Student, Law, law Schools, and it was a table, all minorities uh, of uh, black law professors. So we're talking, talking, mm -hmm. talking. In fact, I remember one of the people at the table was none other than Anita Hill. Oh. She was one of the people at the wow. table. Yeah. So anyway, so I'm just talking, people are talking, and a professor to my left leans, he waits until everyone's quiet, and he leans in and says, what island are you from? <laughs> Not if you're from the islands. Wow. <laughs> what island are you? So, so, so I think there's something to that. that maybe people have a presumption that uh, if you present yourself in a certain way, you just aren't yeah, you know, uh, you an indigenous black, black American. American. Yeah, yeah. You got to. Yeah, you don't, you don't fit the script. <laughs> yeah. I used to be able to. I swear to God, I used to be able to talk. Oh, really? Man, I was code switching like a mud. <laughs> I, I really could do that. Um, and, you know. Right. Well, my son is very good at that, too, okay. by the way. All right. That's good. Yeah, very good. Well, he's, you know, it's a young generation. I think sometimes, I think sometimes, Michael, you and I are obviously the same generation, mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. same year of birth. And I think that some of these things are just inevitable generational yes. changes. That that kids view the, the, the issue of blackness from a different perspective than mm -hmm. we did. So when I was coming of age, the big impulse, the big drive was to engage the larger world yes. and succeed. And, and, and your heroes were Barry Gordy to your left and Rachel Lewis to mm -hmm. your right and aim high for Harvard Law School and make something of yeah. yourself. It, I just, I sense a different strange It's weird. It's weird. Focus. I mean, like when yeah, I learned yeah. I was going to so I, I, you know, nailed the entrance exam uh, to the private yeah. high school that I went to. And I wanted to go to another school. It's like we had busing in L.A. And mm -hmm. uh, there was a way that we knew how to cheat the system if you didn't come from View mm -hmm. Park. Right. Because, of course, the first person they would bus out were the cream of the crop. You know, the sons of the doctors, lawyers, mm -hmm. accountants and Sure. Right, right. Uh, and so we knew some people that lived in the right zip code, and we're like, "You, we'll pretend that we live in the same house as you." And so I went to summer school in Pacific Palisades, right, home of the Reagan. Oh, okay. So I went, I went to Paul right. Revere Junior High, and my aim was to go to Palisades High School, and that's where. Um, oh, I always forget his name. I'll remember it later. Um, mm -hmm. And and so I was ready to go to Palisades. I knew a lot of the people 
who took the bus there. I made a lot of friends instantly. And, and by the way, I was 14 years old and that was the first time mm. I had gone to school with white kids. So I never had oh, any wow. white kids. 14. My, yeah, 14, 14 years wow. old. Wow. Um, yeah. And I, I, I picked it up very quickly. But then I said, oh, you've, you've made it into this Jesuit high school. You got to go there. And I'm like, private school, all boys, all rich white boys. <laughs> but you made it in. You're on the entry. You, 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 you scored a 92nd percentile. You'd be very good right, there. Right. All right. All right. But then I got right. there and I wasn't fitting in, but I was like, I'm competing with the rich white boys. Bring it, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. bring it, and and we had we had a lot of um, essays there. We had Mexicans, we had Ecuadorians, uh, Argentinians. We had a guy named Wafik, uh, who was who was um, uh, Egyptian, and lots of different Asians, and and distinct cliques of of white kids. You know, there were volleyball players, mm-hmm. there were the football players, there were the golfers, the swim team. Everybody had their own clique. And you basically, I learned that fast. White people aren't all the same. Black people aren't all the same. Mm-hmm. But then I hung out with mm-hmm. the bougie black folks. And that was very cool mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I didn't know those people yeah. before, really. So, yeah. That's a very important lesson to learn. And fortunately, I learned that lesson in the third grade at the age mm-hmm. of eight when the school system desegregated. So in a way, that was, that was a blessing for me so that by the time I was 14, I was well in my groove to becoming, you know, the, the student leader of my school. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, yeah. So I was well in that group by then. Although, let me note, I, I should note that when I actually did run in the final race for student council president, can you imagine my opponent was none other than, and, and the school was like 90% black, 9% black. My opponent was the most attractive black female in the Ooh. class, Marva Felder. In fact, I had a podcast of her uh, a few days oh. ago, uh, Dr. Felder now, Dr. Exactly. Mother Felder Davis. Uh, but what's funny, what's funny is um, I just assume I would win this election <laughs> because I've been pumping politics all mm-hmm. along. She just turned on the charm. Oh. She was just so uh, de- delightful um, at the podium that no one won. There was a third candidate who was an undistinguished white student. So no one won a majority of the vote. There was a runoff, and I was scared straight. <laughs> I was, you know, I kind of win this race. This has been my mission since the fourth grade. So I remember appointing a, a campaign manager under emergency circumstances, plastering the hallways with campaign signs, shaking every hand I could mm. meet. Uh, and then luckily, fate smiled at me, and I, I won the race. I defeated Marva. But Marva obviously thought it was funny. Uh, I, I recall those memories years mm. later. She went on to become um, the first Black homecoming queen at Virginia oh, Tech wow. University. And yeah, and she's, she's done quite well. Uh, but I just, we were talking about the fact that when we were young, we really were just middle American kids yeah. in a Southern suburb doing our thing. That's all it takes. And we didn't really That's have... All it takes. Yeah, yeah. I yep. mean, it's, yep. it's funny. I used to go to this um, forum... When I moved back here uh, to to L.A. from uh, Atlanta, where I lived for a few years, mm-hmm. uh, there's a guy uh, who's who's the local dude that everybody knows, Earl O'Fari Hutchinson, mm-hmm. and he had a a um, Sunday 
get together in Lamert Park where they would talk politics. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was a guy that I met there and he was like, I don't understand why these guys are all so negative. You know, they keep asking mm -hmm. City Hall, what are you going to do for the black community? He says, I, mm -hmm. I, I grew up poor, so I just went to the army. The army is instant middle class. Instant. Oh, yep. You don't even have to. All you got to do is take orders and and 18% of the army is black. So mm -hmm. you're not going to be alone, but you will follow orders and you will learn stuff right. and you will bond with people who will have your back until death, especially if, you, if, you, right. if you're going to do combat stuff. So if you're in the Marines, right. they'll teach you the combat stuff anyway. And then you will bond. Mm -hmm. You will be broken and you will be bonded. And it's the same thing with black fraternities. Whenever you pledge, yeah. that's that's a, that's an old manhood passage trick that's that's as old as human civilization. But it's like, why do you keep asking to fight city hall when there are solutions just just that way? Yeah, and and, and there are. Yeah, and and that's okay. I mean, I say black people are doing exactly what they want to do. There's nobody stopping them. You want to take one of ideas mm -hmm. off of that tree? Okay, good. Take them off of this tree. You only, you only get in trouble when you try to represent all of Black America. Ah, because no one can do yeah. that. No one can do, can do that. that. Yeah, if, if there are over 40 million Black Americans, there are over 40 million life stories, experiences, and perspectives, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Your perspective, you and I share a love for free thought. We share That's a true. love for independence That's of true. thought. But we, and, and we share the same age, right. literally, 1961. Right. But, but, we're, but we also in traditions. Are... We're standing in similar traditions of striving, of not being afraid right. of white folks, not believing they have superpowers, right. you know, knowing right. that they, can, they right. can be beat, that you don't have to have mm -hmm. all the marbles on your side to still win, that your, your aim and your energy makes a difference. So, and maybe, Michael, maybe that's our role, Michael. I remember a young writer once said to me that uh, she considered me a wise elder. Ah. Maybe we are wise elders oh. in that sense, right? Because we have the perspective of time. That's, Look at how things have changed. Nobody has taught me how to be a wise elder. I've had, oh, I've really? had a lot of this forced on me. You know, ah. I've, 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 so had difficulties, you know, my, my parents are still around, but they mm -hmm. are, they're 12 years old because they have dementia. <laughs> oh, yeah. that's, I know. No, I it's, funny. it's it's funny. <laughs> there's, there's a dark humor in that, that you have to learn that you have to learn mm -hmm. that dark humor, which is, right. Hey, it's hard. It's hard. Yeah. There's a, there's a, there's a, uh, there was a show on Netflix, I think. It was called The Legend of Buster Scruggs. And one of the episodes, okay. it's a bunch of episodes about the Old West. And these guys are standing on the gallows. They have ropes around their necks. And one of these guys is just sweating bullets. He's scared, of course, because he's going to die. And the guy in the middle right. turns to him and says, first time? <laughs> <laughs> That's Literally funny. I like gallows that. humor. <laughs> And, and if you don't right. have that humor and you're angry at the world all the time, you're going to implode. Yeah. 
So you got to have some yeah. humor about, you know, it's hard, it's hard. But, you know, yeah, there's stuff that we don't know. I, we don't know. Yeah, I agree. To, I agree. You know, we don't want to be broke ballers. I don't want to be a broke baller. I have to learn right. those lessons, which is, you know, get some professionals to help you. Get an attorney. Get an accountant. Get a tax accountant because mm -hmm. a tax accountant is different than a regular accountant. You know, uh, you know, learn right. Right. The, the guys at SCORE who's, who, who are retired guys will help you run your business. Get a minister. Know a cop. There's just people you need to know to succeed at the next level. And you can't just pretend, oh, the whole system's against me. Learn how the system works yeah. and get some help. Well said. Well, well said. And that may be the role of the wise elder during this time of an emphasis on structural and systemic and blackness and suppression of things else matters. That may be our role is to point out to the younger generation, well, no, there's far more to life. There's far more of abundance in oh. life than focusing on, on the negative. I am very much a positive person. And sometimes I wonder, is that, uh, is that personality? Is it genetic? Is it my upbringing? Is it some combination of the, of the above? Um, I'm not sure, but I know I've always kind of been the kind of person who, for whom the glass is half full, not half mm -hmm. empty. And why would I think it otherwise, right? In other words, I remember when I was in third grade encountering bigoted classmates, and I just automatically thought, why would I let people who don't like me define my sense of mm -hmm. self? Like, to me, that made no yeah. sense. Why would I ever listen to someone right. Who doesn't like black right. people to understand the mm -hmm. world? I like myself, so I should create my own sense of how the world mm -hmm. works. That was always my attitude in life. And I, I, once again, my 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 smart son, we were having this discussion of whether or not what matters more: external locus of control mm. or internal locus of mm. control. And my son was saying. Well, you know, all of these people you talk about, Dad, you know, the Barry Gordys and the Percy Suttons and the Reginald Lewises and the John Johnsons mm -hmm. and the Earl mm -hmm. they all had to um, jury-rig their way in life because of external obstacles and prejudices and whatever. Mm -hmm. Well, my response is, well, no one has it easy. The point is to get to your goal, regardless of what's there. Right. That's how you achieve. That's how you uh, accomplish things. There's a wonderful wonderful um, segment on YouTube. I think it's from Rocky, where Rocky's talking to his mm -hmm. son, and he's telling his son, this is the way the world mm -hmm. works. No one's, life is not rainbows and unicorns. Mm -hmm. You've got to get out there, and you've got to take the blows. And if you get hit, you got to get up and go again. Mm -hmm. And if you get hit, get up and go again. That's how winning yeah. is done, as Rocky yeah. says to his son. I believe that. I live that. That's how yeah. I see life. But but I'm also, in terms of being an elder, I'm I'm. There's no rainbows and and, and unicorns in that either, because because <laughs> I've made real choices. Somebody said something to me a couple of weeks ago. Uh, mm -hmm. It was Milton. And Milton said, "You know, everybody complains about they're not being taught enough Black history." And then they'll find somebody in black history that says, oh, this person shows that it can be done. But then if you tell them how to live like that, they don't want to do it. 
Why not? Why not? Hard. Why not? <laughs> well, th- but that's life. Yeah. That's life, Michael. Yeah. It's hard. <laughs> it say, oh, you're just an individual. You're not taking care of your community. But I mean, let's be real. Let's let's talk about Pookie. Let's talk about pooters. Let's let's talk about niggers and white trash. Ooh. <laughs> They're part of America too. And they dream about America mm-hmm. too. And you know, right. it's not like people with power and money are not cheating sometimes. So yeah, it's mm-hmm. hard mm-hmm. out there. So that's why But what is our duty? What's our duty to the community? I once had a, a, a dear cousin say to me, I had given her a manuscript to look at, and I was hoping that she would be impressed, and she deadpan and replied to me and said, well, what have you done to the for the community mm-hmm. lately? What have you done for the mm-hmm. community lately? Mm-hmm. But what is my duty, quote unquote, to the community? I mean, isn't aren't there like 10,000 different answers to that question, number one? And number two, doesn't the answer depend upon my unique personality and makeup. I mean, it may be the case that the community duty Mm -hmm. is for me to be the very best person I can be, Mm -hmm. because then you become an example for others to follow, which is why we still study Reverend Haynes from Vermont in the 1830s, because he became the very best minister he could Mm -hmm. be so that he left a a lasting legacy. I think that's part of the answer. Yeah, there are ministers in the community. And, and and when when I heard you know you know we all heard all cops are bastards and and you know racist white cop unarmed black man that whole thing defund the police I was like sure in your community do you go to the church is it mm-hmm. just a little storefront church or is it a church with you know 300 maybe a thousand people if you don't know a police officer if you don't know a black police officer, and your minister doesn't know a black police officer? Like, are you really part of that community? If you don't know oh, that's attorneys? And, and, that's and it's like, how long are you just going to be in the streets? It, 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 it doesn't all come down to the streets. Sometimes you got to go indoors mm-hmm. and study something. True. And, and learn True. and meet some new people. Have, right. My my father-in-law was a New York City police officer mm-hmm. for a number of years, uh, undercover. And I just he's passed away now. I think he passed away in 2013, 2012. Mm-hmm. But I often wonder how he would have perceived this entire um, movement mm-hmm. uh, over um, the uh, alleged un, un, uh, killing of unarmed black yeah. men, uh, ranging, ranging from Trayvon Martin to George Floyd. I just wonder how in general black police officers view that and view themselves. I mean, do they do they feel that they are still giving back to the community as they enforce the law or do they now feel ostracized and actually quasi enemies of the community uh, as there are more and more calls for defund the police? Yeah. It makes me wonder. Well, you know, my, my brother is retired LAPD. Uh, okay. And uh, he's he's actually here now. Uh, in town. Um, okay. So I've heard I've heard a lot of that, and I've also gone to mm-hmm. uh, Citizens Police Academy. So I'm I'm a shooter, uh, and uh, I'm competent with pistols, uh, and and I've I've hung around cops. I mean, I purposefully went to a 16 week class. So 
Yes. I, I knew good. those guys. And there's good stuff and there's bad. There's good news and bad news. Mm-hmm. The good news is a lot of them are like me with the big brother. I'm the big brother, the oldest of four boys. And I want to make sure on the basketball courts, on the football, everybody plays fair. And mm-hmm. and if people are going to step up and, and, and raise some knuckles, then I'm going to be there. And I'm going to win. Sure. And and my brothers will let me get beat up because I don't do three against one or anything like that. I fight fair. I lose a fair fight, you know. But we didn't have knives and guns in our neighborhoods. It's 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 a different mm-hmm. it's a different thing. Right. Nevertheless, somebody you got to have somebody who's willing to fight. Um, I I just I, I'm just playing with a knife. This is like a, an old habit, <laughs> but. Yeah, you need you need people who are going to fight. And I was talking to my 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 cousin about this the other day, and we were talking about gun control laws. I'm like, mm-hmm. there's there's two people who really know about guns. That's cops and gangsters. Everybody else, yes. they just talk about them. They don't use them. Right. That's true. They don't need they don't need them. It's okay to shoot for fun, but. These guys are about, hey, if it comes to it, I can take a sure. life. And wow. those are the people wow. that you need to talk to if you want to talk about stuff that gets that deep. Uh, mm-hmm. And if, mm-hmm. you, I, if um, you know how to get in and break up a fight, if you're that kind of fool that sees people scuffling in a bar fight and you step between the combatants like the fool that I am, I do that stuff. Then you know something about this, and you know mm. somebody has to physically interject themselves and make peace. Right. Right. Make peace. Right. And that's work yeah. to make peace. Good. That was a good prop with the knife, by the way. <laughs> good prop. So, <laughs> so you, you know, one of the things that, that annoys me sometimes, Michael, is uh, people assume, because of the climate we're in, people assume every black man has a cop story. Every black man has a police story. Um, in fact, I have, an, I have a uh, relative who once said to me, uh, quote unquote, well, every black man I know has a, has a police mm-hmm. story. Uh, well, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be the exception here. I'm going to buck the uh, narrative oh. trend. I'm not sure I have a police story. I've never been um, uh, handcuffed. I've never been arrested. I've never been spoken ill of by a police officer. I've never, um, whenever I've been stopped by a, a police officer, it's been like four times in mm. my life. It's always been because I've done something mm-hmm. wrong and I'm willing to admit the consequences. Mm-hmm. The only, the biggest police story I have is a very positive police mm. story. And I share it. Uh, my wife and daughter, we were on our way to um, a ski slope a ski mm-hmm. resort in uh, Reno, Nevada. And we oh, yeah, decided to stop. Reno. Yeah. And we decided to, or Lake Tahoe. Yeah, Lake Tahoe, Tahoe sorry, Reno. Lake Tahoe. Sparkle. Yeah. And we decided to stop in Mammoth, California, because it was a raging blizzard. Oh. And we just thought we couldn't make it all the way to Lake yeah. Tahoe. So um, we stopped. But then we decided, oh, but we really need to get there before... Um, 
I don't know, 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock at yeah. night. So we decided to try again, but it was dark. It was a blizzard. You could barely see 10 feet in front of the car. I'm not a snowman, <laughs> so I don't really know how to use uh, tire chains. And so basically I did a very bad job. The chains came off of the oh. tires and we were stuck on the side of the road in a blizzard Ow. and mammoth. And I didn't know what to do. My hand, my fingers were freezing, trying to put the chains back on the tire. Wasn't working. And then the angel appeared, <laughs> Michael, the angel in the distance. You can see the, 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 the bright lights getting closer and closer. Mm-hmm. It was a California police officer, state highway yep. patrolman. He, he opened his door and said, what's what's happening you guys having problems mm-hmm. yes 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 we are please help us please help us we don't know what we're doing we're in a blizzard he literally left his car he got down on the ground and spent maybe a good 15 to 20 minutes carefully putting the chains properly on each of our four yeah. tires and when he was done he said you know if you guys want me i will escort you back to a resort here in mammoth mm-hmm. We were like, yes, 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 please, please. And, uh, and so he carefully led us back up the mountain to the resort. My point is, that was a life-saving moment for me and my mm-hmm. family. That was my police mm-hmm. story. I'm sticking with it. I have good feelings towards policemen because of that. Because of that. I have right? I have lots of police stories. But, but uh-huh. most of them are, are LAPD stories. Basically, mm-hmm. you know, I, I counted the number of times that I've been detained uh before mm-hmm. i left la uh detained yeah. okay uh, i've been arrested once on a traffic warrant okay uh but it's 27 and, and 27? 27 yeah so we have we have different <laughs> life stories here we have different life yeah. stories here i'm thinking mammoth blizzard right. rescue right. okay but but you know i there's nobody in my family that's ever gone to jail so mm-hmm. I don't I don't I don't know anything about the criminal thing, but I right. also I also know, as I was saying, the only black people you know are the black people you know. And, right. and if those black people you know tell you X about police because something happened to cousin Pootie, then that's what you believe about all police. Right. Because most people, right. black, white, any. Most people don't want to talk to police even when they have to, right? Mm-hmm. And and they feel like, well, I'm American. I got my rights. You, you really don't know what they are. You really don't know mm-hmm. how mm-hmm. police business works. And, right, and, right. and people don't generally stop to think about that. And, and I've had to tell them the story, again, with gangsters and cops, about sure. Suge Knight, that everybody knows he's a, a drug dealing rap producer. And when he got arrested for murder, he stepped out of the car, he followed the instructions of the officer and went peacefully, you know, hands up. I'm not doing anything. He didn't open his mouth. He just got in the car. Gotcha. Gotcha. He knew how so, the system worked. <clears throat> so Michael, ex- explain to me and, and I appreciate your story. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. How do I conceptualize and place into context my unique personal life story regarding police officers? Mm-hmm. 
because unlike your story, which is authentic, my authentic <laughs> story is very middle American. Call me crazy. I don't no. know. But I feel like Michael, but I feel like Michael, there's like subtle informal pressure to go along, to get along. Like if I were to make up some story of police mm-hmm. abuse at the faculty oh, yeah. lounge, right? You know, Hosanna. Right, 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 right. But if I tell my mammoth California blizzard <laughs> story and thank you, Lord, for the angel right, right. of mercy, dead silence. Right, right. right. Well, the, so how do I be authentic in this discussion? Well, like, authentically, you start with the numbers. You say, okay. look, um, there are 17,000 different police precincts in the United States of America. Mm-hmm. And you right. were pulled over by the California Highway Patrol who are just as nice as they are in reality as they are on the TV show Chips. I, I want to get pulled over by the CHP because they're nice. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and they just care about your safety. And they're not, they're yes. not fighting crime. They're safety officers. He was on his back in yes. a blizzard, Michael. On his yes. back in a blizzard, helping her. Right. Yeah, yeah. But, but, but cops... And again, it depends on the jurisdiction. Um, cops have thankless jobs. Mm-hmm. So the best way to think about a cop, for me, this works for me, is like your dad comes home drunk. He's got a whiskey bottle in his hand. He's hit your mother before. <laughs> he bangs the can, uh, and now he's coming Sorry. after with a broken bottle. You, as mm-hmm. a kid, are freaking out. That mm-hmm. is the beginning of a cop's day, right? An mm-hmm. average, mm-hmm. ordinary day. I mm. have seen, you know, so you, you talk to a cop, and he says, how many domestic violence calls have you responded to? Oh, you know, two or three on a weekend, easy. You know, uh, how many traffic tickets have you given? I could give 100 traffic tickets, but I'm tired. I, there's so many violations. I pick which one I want to. I pick which violator I want to stop. Yeah. I always stop the violator with kids in the back seat, because I've mm. seen the ugly side of that. Mm. And and so, you want to get real? Sit down and talk to a cop. Sit down and talk to a black cop. And and then and then True. and then think about it again. If you're the kind of person that puts yourself in a dangerous situation to, to, to help people out. Resisting arrests in that context would not go too well if the cop is already primed. And the cop is, to... the cop is as disgusted with you for not following orders as you are with him for mm-hmm. daring to take away your freedom. Like, mm-hmm. don't you mm-hmm. know you're supposed to follow my orders? You're making it hard right. for me. Right. If I twist my ankle yeah. on this, and I have to miss a couple of days of work because your knucklehead won't just shut up and get in the car. <laughs> Don't you know you have right? Don't you know Michael, you they're going to cancel you. And a judge? They're going to cancel you at the BLM office. You know that, right? They're going to cancel See, you was, at the BLM office. I was office. waiting for BLM. <laughs> After three or four years, I wanted to see one yeah. picture of the BLM president of a city shaking hands with the chief of police and saying, we oh. have come up with something. We work something yeah. out. I have never seen it. Did it happen? Never seen it. I have never seen it. Well, you know why? It didn't. It didn't happen because now we are really going to 
go down that road <laughs> because B, because B, because BLM is not constructive. Yeah. It's destructive, okay. right? It's destructive. So to me, I'm just being me. You should run as fast as you can from BLM. Yeah. You should reject BLM in the classroom. You should reject BLM as a uh, moral force for good. You should recognize that it's about um, destructiveness in the public squares. That's just mm-hmm. me. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. See, my um, you, my children. Black privilege is. Where's black privilege? Black privilege is that you get to choose what black people you hang out with, because you know hundreds oh, and hundreds of black people. But white yeah. people who don't live around black people, they don't know any black people. So they have to accept the black, the few black people that they know. They don't get to That's choose. That's a good point. They outnumber us is a seven point. to one. That is the a good point. Okay, you okay, to have but, 50 but, white friends is easy. For any one of those white friends but, to have 50 black friends is very hard. That's a good point. But if you are a black teenager in a suburban school, let's say the school is 4% mm-hmm. black, aren't you really going to be equally exposed to white kids as white kids yes. are? I mean, think about that. Unless, yeah. unless so your I... attitudes are going to be the same. Right. So so you're going to be less prone to stigmatize whiteness because you have personal mm-hmm. experience that people are different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You've got tall and right. short. You've got mean and nice. Yeah. That's one of the great things about, I think, public school desegregation integration. We are in the wrong path when we support Black affinity mm-hmm. groups and Black segregated groups. And that's not the way to bring people together. If, if you don't interact with people unlike yourself, then you only know people like yourself in a superficial yeah. way. That's yeah. my thinking. Yeah. 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 And of course, then the hard question becomes, Michael... <clears throat> What does that mean for historically black colleges and universities? Because we all love Howard University. Go by Do we? Can we? Uh oh. <laughs> Let the call go out to the Howard Yard. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't. I don't drink no milkshakes on that yard. <laughs> Oh wait, wait, wait! I, I'm going to stop laughing. I'm going to stop laughing, bro. But, but in, okay. In all seriousness, though, don't we as Black Americans view Howard as our answer to Harvard? I thought all jokes aside. Oh, oh, okay. I, I thought. Don't you think, or do you not think? Um, I'm sorry that I am blanking <laughs> because I know that there's another school. Uh oh, another yes. school. A pretender to the throne. A pretender to oh the god. throne. Oh my god. <laughs> All right. Connie, edit out this part where I'm thinking. Oh my god. <laughs> Connie, laugh with me, Connie. Laugh with me. <laughs> These are your wise elders, oh Connie. Oh my god. Oh my god. Now, see, I got I have Cheney on my head. And I had Lincoln right, right. in my head because my dad went to Lincoln right. for a minute. Oh, but neither you. one of those is the school that I'm thinking about, which is Hampton, Hampton. Morehouse. It's okay. Hampton. Now, I, gotcha. I was informed that Hampton 
is the Harvard yes. of the HBCUs. Who told you that? Who, who fed you this misinformation? This is clearly dogma. <laughs> this is clearly propaganda that should not be part of our podcast. My Lord, Michael. <laughs> but, but also, honestly, I had a girlfriend and she was a third generation medical student. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she went to Howard and she hated it. So then, well, now that's the dirty secret. To, then she went to Yale, and she loved yes. it. And mm, he, she mm, said mm. the difference between Howard and Yale was night and day. And and mm. she was a little, you know, crazy, but she carried a grudge. Mm-hmm. Um, and and <laughs> well, I'm I'm going to confess that I I I know people who've gone to Howard because mom went to Howard or dad went to Howard, and they were unimpressed. Mm-hmm. I have known people. Mm-hmm. Yes, this is true. This is true. I've known people who've had to choose between Yale and Spelman College, and they've chosen Yale. Yes, this mm-hmm. is true. So there's something to that. There's something to yeah. that. My actually, my son uh, was fortunate to receive like some kind of crazy um, uh, combination full scholarship. In other words, it would have been seven years. And at the end, he would have had his MD from the Howard Medical mm. School, but he decided to go a different okay. route uh, mm. in life. So, you know, I think so. I think we should wrap up around here. I mean, this yes, has I been agree. this has been a great rambling exercise, uh, and, and I've <laughs> I've had a ball. Uh, we definitely have yes, to do yes. this again. Uh, so I am. Do you think? Do you think next time, like like Glenn and uh-huh. John? Should we have like a discreet topic next time? Yeah, I think I like think maybe Claudine Gay or uh, I don't know. Uh, yeah, that would Claudine be that would be Gay. very topical. <laughs> yeah, I think I think right. We should definitely do uh, you know a DEI episode. That yes, would be timely. Yes, must definitely. I think we should yeah. do a Blacks and Jews episode. Yes, that I agree. Would be very timely. I agree. All great ideas. I think you know. I agree. At some point, we'll have to get to the perennial question uh of 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 cops which we just barely skimmed the top of here absolutely we'll talk about education and how how it's changed and and what's going on and and, what about the black family oh absolutely two-parent privilege there's so many rich topics oh yeah there's there's plenty and and then and then you know we will do it with with our with our sense of humor uh, with sure, our little, sure. our, our gray hair. <laughs> yes, that's right. I have some there. I just got a haircut, but it's there. Well, absolutely have to talk about food. Yes, definitely. Because I can't cook, but my wife, ooh, she can burn. She uh, puts her foot in it. Whoa. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> then we can talk, so, we can talk about music. Sure. And, and books, books. Oh, absolutely, books, books. Yeah. So uh, I'll sign off. I don't have a cute saying uh, before. I, yeah. I, I I do that. Well, you you could say something like you you better watch out, <laughs> Glenn and John. We're on your path. <laughs> we're on your path. Yes. Yeah, we are. We are Glenn and John. And 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 I I, I love you both. But I only got to hang out yes. with one of you last time. 
Uh, I promise to hang uh, out with the other. There you go. There you go. All right. Talk to you later, All dude. Right. Take care. Thought Podcast.